Thank you for joining us today for the ministry of the word at Foundation Church. We pray that what you hear today will be as much of a blessing for you as it was for the people of our congregation. Well, greetings this Pentecost Sunday in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know, uh, I felt that I was a part of a really cool family growing up. Um, and part of it was because we gathered together and we did things together. And it gave me a, uh, a strength in my life um, knowing that, hey, you know, they're going to have this family reunion and we're going to get together and we're going to do this thing. You, you know what I'm talking about? And the church is kind of like this, you know. I, I think oftentimes we think we have to do some big thing. But I think the idea is that we just keep doing the little things. We just keep getting together. We just keep having another meal. We just keep having another service. And it's like with our children. Like, you know, think about it. When you had your children, you thought, well, how am I ever going to raise them? Well, you're going to raise them a meal at a time, a day at a time, a lesson at a time. And you're going to turn around and they're going to be driving you to church. Right? And... Uh, God hasn't called us to, you know, snap our fingers and our children to be grown or to, to build the whole church or the whole world or it all has to happen in some big explosion here in Mount Sterling. What God has called us to do is to faithfully gather, to gather in his name, to believe that he is the light that when he shines upon us, he will give us increase, that we will grow and that we will bear fruit. Amen. That's what Pentecost is about. It's about bearing fruit. And it is about that Jesus went into the ground as a kernel of wheat. The Bible said if you, if you just stay around and you don't, if you don't take that seed and you put it in the ground, what happens to it? Nothing, right? But Jesus was put in the ground and what did he do? He came forth. He bore fruit. And so he, they said, wait around until the day of Pentecost and I'm going to pour out upon you my spirit and so that's what happened so on that day we celebrate the beginning and the birth of a church that is now more than uh, 2,000 years old or about 2,000 years old and we give thanks because God is doing exactly what he said he was going to do amen Psalm 51 is our call to worship today and it reminds us of the fact that uh, maybe if you're here today and you're even thinking, I don't know that I should be here because I'm a sinner. Psalm 51 takes us and reminds us to repent. The Bible tells us that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, what will God do? He will forgive our sins. David confesses his sin in Psalm 51 and he asks God for this in Psalm 51.1. Have mercy upon me, O God according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speaks and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. 
purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew in me a right spirit. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with the free spirit. How many, how many people want that? How many people want God to create in you a clean heart, to renew in you a right spirit, to give you joy? You know, our sins can weigh us down. Our sins can be a burden upon us, but the Bible says, cast your cares on me and I will bear them. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Uphold me with the free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways. Sinners shall be converted unto me. Unto thee, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. For my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thy lips. Open my mouth, shall show forth praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion and build the walls of Jerusalem. And then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for giving us another day to gather in your name. Another day to gather with those that you have knitted us together with in your love. I pray, Lord, that you would indeed make us a group of people who love each other. Lord, you said that the world would even know that we belong to you because of our love for each other. Let today be another opportunity of drawing near to each other as we draw near to you. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said. Amen. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for this great day that you have made. Every day that you make is a great day, Lord. Some days have harder things and easier things, but they're always the day that you have made. And so we rejoice and we are glad in it, Lord. We're glad to be here among the brethren to hear your word, to exercise our tongue in confession and to hear the gospel, to see the gospel, to sing the gospel and to read the gospel, Lord. We pray that you would uh, bind our hearts further into you, Lord, each and every day as we grow in Christ, Lord, and make us more like you. Let the, <clears throat> the words of your word be invested in our hearts today that it would be a reminder all week as we meditate on your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it has been a robust service for me today. That's all I can tell you. Uh, Jonathan, excellent, excellent job on the songs. Um, and uh, that second hymn we did, that was something else. That's all I'm saying. That was something else. And so I appreciate, you know, I told my wife on the way here, I preached this message about, a, I think, in April at my church. And so usually I, I do new messages here and I repeat them at my church, but this is the other way around. And um, 
I told my wife, you know, I, I spent about 45 minutes going over the sermon, just doing some little editing notations, and then I went to the computer and put them back into the printed version. I said, honey, I'm just ready to go preach. I just want to get through liturgy and get to it so I can preach. And I was wrong about that. <laughs> liturgy was fantastic today. Um, I'm really blessed at the scripture readings today, uh, knowing the message I'm about to preach. Those scripture readings are robust, and I will be making mention of them because they are just full of teeth. And so uh, <clears throat> I would like to begin the sermon today in Romans uh, 6, 1 through 14. I told the guys earlier I've been waiting to preach this scripture probably for four or five years, but Romans is so thick and this particular text in Romans is almost like the hinge on a door. Everything leading up to chapter 6 is about how our redemption comes to be. And everything after Romans 6 is how we walk it out and how God works his purposes. And then Romans 12 through 16 is, so then do this and do this and make sure you love everybody and say hi to Bob to me for me. Now, it's not Bob. It's, it's those Greek names there at the end of Romans. But Romans 6 is like the hinge point. It's the axiom where, boom, things happen. And, and God is, Paul, the apostle, is explaining, this is what happens to you. The first section of this scripture is what we call the indicative. It's a fancy word, I suppose. It's not just in theology. But the indicative points to what is. Paul is describing what has happened in your life. So let's read the text. Romans 6, 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer would be enslaved to sin. For no one has who has died has been set. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let, no one, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. That is a mouthful of theology right there. And uh, so in verses one through four, so Paul says, 
Well, I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm so excited. Genesis 2, 16 to 18. I forgot all about my introduction. I just wanted to jump right into the text. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. They might have looked at each other on that day and said, after they ate that fruit, they probably looked at each other, well, we're still alive. This is amazing. I thought he said we would surely die. But, you know, things were definitely different at that moment. Now, all of a sudden, they were naked and ashamed. And now they hid from the Lord. And they would soon learn the sweat of the brow, thorns and thistles, pain in childbirth, and interpersonal conflict. No, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. Blame game. They might not be physically dead, yet things were definitely different. They were in the process of dying. Entropy for all the science geeks in the room. That would be me too. Entropy was now a thing in the universe. That means everything is dying. The universe is dying. You know that, right? We're just dying. God in his mercy, however, did not wipe them out. Not right away. Although legally, he had every right to. He could have said, done. But God had a bigger plan. God would always only be known as the just God, not the merciful God. Also, instead of according to the according to the wisdom of his own counsel, he gave a promise of a coming redeemer. And if we fast forward a thousand years and man left to himself unchecked in his wickedness has grown to the limit such that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually, and God destroyed the earth. Now, the point of that is this. They were dying, and they were getting worse and worse. And this is what sin does. It corrupts, it grows, and it will destroy you. And so God said, I'm going to let you try it out. And for a 1,000 to 1,400 years, whatever the date is, Mankind grows more wicked and God wipes it out. Now, we read a scripture about that today from Noah. I'm, I'm listening to that scripture reading um, and how he, how the rains came and washed over the earth and killed every living thing. That is a theme. That is a theme in baptism. The washing of the world the rains came. It said the heavens opened up. You know, for us, when the heavens open up and the spirit falls, it's a great thing. But if you're not on God's team, oh, better get out of the way. It's a bad thing. And so we were essentially, before Christ, dead men walking. Dead men walking, rotting and decaying. And in the eyes of God, just a filthy, stinking mess. I don't mean to be too graphic or too poignant, but it's true. Therefore, Romans 5, 12 through 14, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So therefore, uh, see, this is, this is leading up to Romans 6, 18. This is what Paul does. Paul is marching us through Romans, showing us the plan of redemption and why we need it. Romans 5, 18 to 21, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience so many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now the title of my sermon is Till Death Do Us Part. Because you see this theme of death. Adam and Eve died. And what happened? It separated them from God. Well, there's another death coming. Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, this is not an old theme for Paul. If you read a lot of what Paul writes, he repeats a lot of what he says into other epistles as well. So earlier in Romans, he's being accused of being a uh, antinomian, someone who doesn't believe in the law. You can just do whatever you want and grace is great. And he says, and why not do evil that good may come? This is Romans 3, 8, as some people slanderously charge us with. And then later on in verse 31, do we not overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. See, he says, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So now Paul in Romans 6 is going to explain why. The what is. Because it goes against our new nature because we have died to sin. That's why by no means. And I like what Paul says. He says, or do you not know? Do, do, do y'all not know why we're different? Do y'all not know why we love the law? Or are you not aware of what has taken place? And by extension, are we aware? I find your average Christian misses this. I, I missed it for a long time. The depth of it I missed. Do you not know, verse 3, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? See, he's asking a rhetorical, not a, quite a rhetorical question, but has anybody explained to you the process that you went through? This is why being born again is not about you making a decision. It's far bigger than that. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Don't, don't you all think of baptism as being baptized into life? I know we have the, but this is the, this is the key here. In order that, so that, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You can't be raised to life if you haven't been killed yet. There's an old man 
in every one of us. And we know that he's still lurking. So in order to be made alive in Christ, we first had to die. You know what the good news of the gospel is? God is going to kill you. That's not the whole gospel, but that's half of the good news. Oh, wretched man that I am. Isn't it a good thing that God's killing that guy? That guy who is obnoxious, who bothers us, pesters us? Yes, the old man was dead in his trespasses, but he was alive to sin. See, the old man was alive to sin, and you were under his ultimate control. So someone's got to go, because there's only enough one room for one sheriff in town. The, 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 the dead man cannot be your ultimate ruler. Christ must be. Amen. You know, he was alive to sin, it says later on in Romans, and dead to righteousness. Now, he's dead to righteousness. Um, you're dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Amen. He's been replaced. Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith by the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 4 says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. Now I think the average person who reads that is going to scratch their head a little bit and say, well, what does that mean? Now, Roman Catholics teach that when they baptize babies, they're born again. They believe in regenerational baptism. I'm going to tease you a little bit. So don't I. I do too. Just not like that. You know, we do not, we do not believe in baptismal regeneration, and neither is Paul teaching that. The ordinance of baptism, the sacrament of baptism is a, just a sign, that's all it is, just a sign that points towards the promise of God in regeneration. It points to a reality. That's what signs do. Signs aren't the thing themselves. They're pointers. Like big uh, billboards. Like signs that say, turn right, yield, stop. They tell you about something else, a reality. The sign is not the right turn. The sign is not to stop. The sign is to tell you to stop because there's something else. The baptism that saves, that is regenerating, that is baptismal regeneration, can only be done by the Holy Spirit at the time of His choosing without hands, the Scripture says. Colossians 2, 11 and 12. In him you who were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, not the circumcision of a knife, but of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Circumcision and baptism, you know what they both represent? Death. Circumcision is you're just cutting off dead flesh. If you have a gangrene piece of material on your body, you want to cut it off because it's going to kill you. You need to circumcise that dead limb. 
<laughs> Titus 3, 4 to 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. What's it going to say next? By the washing of regeneration. Does that sound like baptism to you? Does that sound like the washing? But it's not of water. And the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out. That's the washing. That's the wa The Holy Spirit is poured out all over you. You know, you cannot survive in the presence of God as a sinner. It kills you. That's why they had to veil the glory of God in the Old Testament. When God showed himself to Moses, the backside, and his, and his face glowed for a month. He had to cover his face. God said, you don't want to see my glory ahead of time. Because no man can see my glory and live. You have to die if you want to see God's glory. And you don't get to see it all at once, too, because there's too much of the old man kicking around. And that would be too hard to deal with. It's like, if you bend that limb too fast, you'll break it. So God gradually, thank God, sanctifies us one day at a time. That's how, that's why children grow, that's how you grow one day at a time. Boring, mundane living. It assaults your old man. So regeneration by way of baptism, just not a baptism performed by us. It is the baptism of the Holy Ghost. That's the baptism of the Holy Ghost. You see? Pentecost was just a sign. All those gifts were just a sign pointing to what God's doing in a new covenant. Just like all the miracles under Moses was a sign pointing forward. Read about it in Hebrews. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> the baptism of the Holy Ghost that gives us new life while simultaneously killing the old man. It is indeed nothing short of a miracle. So it's not like this happens in two stages where God kills you, comes back in an hour or two and raises you from the dead. That's not how God works. You know how he kills you? He shows up. He just shows up. He pours himself on you through his spirit. And in the process, it's like pouring acid on a disease. You die and then he lives in you. And because you have been crucified with him, you no longer live. But I live by the faith of the Son of God who died and gave himself for me. Amen. Scripture says, oh, it's exciting. So, our death is that circumcision of the flesh of the old man and two, the washing of regeneration raised to new life. You know, in Hebrews, I've mentioned this before, it says that the word of God is like a sharp knife that cuts between bone and marrow that knife, by the way, is the same knife they use in circumcision that, that, that the text is speaking of. So the word of God cuts us, gets rid of the dead stuff so that we can grow. You should see crepe myrtle trees in, in, in Louisiana. These trees bloom. They only get about 15 to 20 feet high max. And when they prune them, it looks like they just killed the tree. They literally prune them down to the stubs so that it's only like this big. And you oh, what did you just? That's how you make crepe myrtles grow better. 
You crop them like that so you can direct how they grow. And I promise you those things are growing back. And within two or three years, you've got a, a healthy little tree. But I'm going to tell you, that's painful. But that's okay. God's a good doctor. He knows what he's doing. So we're dead to sin and alive to Christ. The old man must be put to death in order that the new man is risen with Christ. So Romans 6, 5 through 8. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, see Paul's introducing the language, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For no one, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So Paul is rehearsing the indicatives. We know this, we know this, we know this, and we know this. Ezekiel 26 36, 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. So now Paul, after rehearsing that information on the indicatives of our faith, is going to tell us what to do about it. He says, now we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die. Again, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, Paul says, so. That means, so what do we do about it? Well, you must also, you must consider. That's what you do about it. You must consider. You know, if you're looking for a task, if you're looking for great works, you just hit the, you just hit ground zero. That is it. That is it. What's our biggest struggle all the time, Mark, is getting our head on straight. That's right. It's my biggest struggle. He knows that. And I can tell you that's sometimes his biggest struggle. In fact, I bet everybody in this room, what you struggle, <clears throat> excuse me, what you struggle with is getting your head on straight. Because that's, that's where your emotions come from. Your, when your head's not on straight, what does it do to your emotions? Oh, life is over. Oh, this, oh, that. Because you've already forgotten. Why do we forget? Because we don't remember. Do you understand? This is what Paul, he says, so you also, this is a strong word, must, have to, can't do without it. You must consider. He didn't say you must pray three times a day and you must read the Old Testament and memorize it. He said you must consider. And what must you consider? All those little things he just rehearsed. You're dead to sin. You're alive to Christ. You have a new identity. You're not the old man anymore. You're the new man and the old man is hanging out trying to convince you that you're not new What does it mean to consider? It means to think carefully about, especially in order to make a decision, to contemplate or to reflect on, to regard as or deem to be, to think, believe or suppose, to bear in mind, 
to make allowance for. These, this is what we do when we cogitate. This is what we do when we think and consider. Now, Paul didn't tell us to consider whether the Celtics are going to win tomorrow. He didn't tell us to consider what our stock market is. He didn't tell us to consider if we have strong bodies, weak bodies, big bank accounts, or small bank accounts. He said you must consider that you... God, that's right. You must consider your new life in Christ, your new identity. Talk about taking the wind out of the I want to do something sales. You know what's so um, difficult about that? It's so, um, there's no pizzazz to that. You know, it makes you face the mundane of every, uh, every day. Because every day you face this challenge again, and you think you can do it away by doing stuff. And you must do stuff, and there's a reciprocation going on there. But it starts with how you think. And sometimes you're not thinking right. And so you know you got to do until you can get your head on straight. But you know you're not going to last long on that battery if you don't get your head straight sooner or later. Because you, you, that's just, you, nobody has enough energy and enough willpower to overcome bad thinking. And this is not a seminar on positive thinking. That stuff is rooted in the wrong considerations. Our considerations are the word of God. I wonder if the Bible supports that theory. The apostle gives us the imperative we must consider, we must settle upon it in our minds, in our thinking. We must. Joshua 1.8. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That's Romans 8. Paul's going to get to that. If I was doing a series, we'd be doing chapter 7 next. I can promise you that because then we're going to land in chapter 8. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How are we renewed? By doing good works. Well... Fine. Your first good work is to renew your mind by the word of God, that by testing you may discern, know the difference between things, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's a pretty high thing. Now this is what Paul says about this very thing in chapter 7 later on. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, Evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God, my inner being. But I see my members, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. When your mind is not right, it will make you captive to the old man who, want, who does not want to relinquish control. He was your landlord. He was your husband. He was your slave master. He's not anymore, and he doesn't like losing rent. And he's going to do whatever he can to fight. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So your old man is busy serving itself, but your mind is busy getting renewed and serving the Lord. Now there is a winner in this war, and there is a promise in verse 14. Who's going to win? God doesn't leave us helpless. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. This is our strategy for working out our salvation, remembering our identity, and by faith, trusting as we work out our salvation. Now, that's, all very, that's very important. By faith, by trust. By trusting what? By faith in what? My faith has to have an object, and it's not my strength. And it's not my daily successes or failures on the job. My trust has to be in something more eternal than that. Verse 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Hey, did, were we able to work out that graphic? If we do, we're going to have a, a graphic. Nope. We'll see. So anyways. Yeah, now. There you go. There you go. Now that's not a pretty picture. I know. I know. We're going to eat lunch soon. It's not a pretty picture. That man has a 200-pound tumor. This is a, a documentary was made. A, 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 a guy from Chicago, a doctor, was the only doctor in the world brave enough to try and get rid of that. And it's an extensive surgery. It took them probably 24 hours. They have to have an anesthesiologist constantly monitoring the, the patient, and they have to have like 100 pints of blood. And you know why? Because every time, that little thing has vessels all connected to the main body. It's a parasite. It is feeding off that little man. That's how it lives. It feeds off you. Anybody see correlation here? There's an old man hanging around who's feeding off of you, and he's got so many veins and clutches stuck in you that you are helplessly, you're incapable of getting rid of the new man. Does that make it hard? I want it to be so hard that you go, I give up. I could never, if I try to get rid of this guy, I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to die right there on the table. That is true. Who is skillful enough to get rid of the old man? Nobody. Nobody. But there is one person. I, I, I love the songs we did today. I love the, uh, the Martin Luther song. There is one man who with just one word can fell him. And his name is Jesus Christ. You can, you can take off the graphic now. That's a graphic graphic. <clears throat> that... That is a troubling thing. And to get this tumor off, they have to snip it one artery. This thing's got like arteries the size of your finger. They have to cut it one at a time and cauterize it. And that's why they need all that blood. Because this thing starts like bleeding fast and they got to quick, cauterize it quick. And so there's literally someone there with multiple pints of blood constantly feeding the patient so that the tumor doesn't kill him by bleeding out. One little vessel at a time. And you and me have so much sin in us that we don't even realize it. And God has to cut one vessel at a time. 
And it's a very skillful and delicate surgery that only the Holy Spirit is capable of. We have to approach our brothers and sisters with love, patience, and kindness, and be delicate. Because we, too, have tumors. Listen to this. Let not sin. This is point three. It's called the mortification of the flesh. Otherwise known as sanctification. This is, this is what we have to do. Let not sin, therefore, as a result of everything I just talked about, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to, to God as instruments of righteousness. Now, I'm going to list that for you. Let not sin reign. That's what you got to do. Let not sin reign. How are we doing? Okay. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of righteousness. How are we doing? And present yourselves to God. That was a very simple, but how are we doing? We probably fail as much or more than we succeed. So how? This is what Paul means. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from that body of death we just saw up there, that 200-pound tumor? Who will deliver me from that body of death? We all feel the weight of that guy. He really bothers us. This is not possible in our own strength. This is what it means. You know how when you, we talk about you can't do it in your own strength? That's what it means. We can't do what in our own strength? Let's, let's look at it again. What can't we do in our own strength? We can't not let sin reign. Present your members as instruments of right, unrighteousness and present yourselves to God. We, we just, we're under the weight of a 200-pound gorilla. It is by his word, by faith, working in our hearts through the power of the Spirit that we grow in Christ, walking in repentance and holiness. It, it, it happens through his word as we give up and trust him, as we stop rebelling in frustration because it's not our will but his. I, I, I fail in that area sometimes miserably. Ephesians 6, 16 to 18. You want to know how we do it? This is how we do it. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. That is the shield of trust. What protects you from this gorilla? Trust. The shield of faith is the shield of trust. Trust that the word, consider that the word is true. Okay? With which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. You know, our weapons are not carnal. They're spiritual and powerful. And take the helmet of salvation. Got a better idea of what that means now? Protect your mind. Your mind needs to be embedded with one truth. You died and now you live in Christ. That's, the hel that's what salvation is. That's why this Romans 6 is so important. This is the moment. And the sword of the Spirit, which is with the Word of God. Shield of faith, helmet, sword. Now, what do you do with a sword, by the way? You cut things. Now, are you very preoccupied with cutting your neighbor? Didn't Jesus say, hey, you know, you might want to take that log out of your own eye? 
This is why it's all delicate business. Because God wants you to employ the word of God first on you, on yourself. You've got, you know, I say this all the time, being is doing. Once you're set free of a weight, you go, whoa, now you know how that works. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Pray for yourself. Pray for others. Employ the Word of God. Protect your mind and then trust the Lord with the shield of faith. You know, the law once was our dreaded curse because we were incapable of keeping it. We are now, because we're new and we're in Christ, he is making us capable. The law is our best friend. The Bible says that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. This is the word of God that's doing the cutting. There's a movement afoot, and it always has been afoot, this antinomian idea that we don't have to obey the law. No, we want to obey the law. We love the law. We have to obey the law. What kind of children would we be? Why Graham writes, the law of God condemns, restrains, and teaches. It can no longer curse or cause fear of death for those who are in Christ. Instead, it can aid Christians in accomplishing what they want to do by the Spirit already. See what they want to do. Obey God freely by the Spirit without the encumbrances of sin. Now, I brought us to this point because we're about done. And this is something I've been seeing for years, that it's one of my favorite little understandings of this is, and the law. Because Paul talks about the law all through chapter 7. Okay, not in chapter 8. He talks about a new law in chapter 8, but he talks about our relationship to the law. So here's the deal. Everybody gets killed, but there's still a gorilla hanging around that's got to get surgically removed one day at a time. Well, how do we know what vein is what? Well, that vein is rebelling against that law. That vein is rebelling against that law. You see, there's sin in you that you haven't repented of yet. You can only repent of what you know, right? You just give them your whole life and you repent. Oh, I got these sins, you know. But as you grow in Christ, what does he reveal to you? Dang, I didn't know I was that bad. I have rebellion in this area. God did something and I don't like. I've discovered that I don't always love my neighbor to affect. I'm hating some of my neighbors. But, but I thought you were born again and life is rosy and you just love Jesus. Oh, but there's a lot in there that hasn't yet been removed. And you know, and I've quoted this text many times here. He said he didn't let them take over the new land in the Old Testament too quickly because the wild beast would rise up and kill them. <laughs> That's pretty bizarre, but it's true. I didn't know the wild beasts were that good. But that is the case in your walk with Christ. If God, if you tried to take the whole thing at once, it would be too much for you. Sometimes we can't perceive just how bad we are. And it's depressing, overwhelming, it's dark. And so God graciously does it a day at a time, one breakfast meal at a time. Your children don't grow quickly. They grow slowly because that's merciful. Yeah. 
If you put your, your five-year-old with the responsibility of a 20-year-old, what will it do to him? Bad things. And God is gracious and doesn't give you more than you can handle, the Bible says. So slowly but surely, as we seek to obey his commands, his law, see, the law's not our enemy now. It's our best friend. It presses on us. That is us who want to obey the Lord. People who don't want to obey the Lord, they're running from the law as fast as they can. But those in Christ who want to obey the law, the law is your best friend. Amen. Reviving the soul. <laughs> who knew that the law revives your soul? Well, we do because the Bible tells us it does. So you don't know you're sinning until someone comes along and says, you know, that's a problem. And then you realize how big of a problem it is, and it can be overwhelming. And so we must trust the Lord. Now, here's the promise. Here's the underwritten promise in this battle, this gargantuan war we're in. For your mind, for sin will have no dominion over you. That's, that's verse 14. Since, because, as a result of, you are not under law but under grace. That's the promise. See, that's the ultimate trust point as we fail and get up again and fail. It's not how many times you fail, is it? What is it? It's how many times you get back up, right? It's not how many times you sin. You know, I, I have a friend who um, his relationship with God was always worried about how much he sinned that day. And he was always, I mean, literally walking around petrified half the time. Oh, ooh, I, oh sorry, Lord, sorry. And I agree that we should be walking in repentance. I said, you know, I just got news for you. You're sinning more than you know. You're way worse than you think you are. You need to relax a little and understand that you're in a process, that God is your gracious, loving, kind master now. You're not under the old slave master. You have a new master who's gracious and kind and patient and loving. Yeah, you died and that old marriage is done. The ball and chain is gone. Now you've got a new marriage, and it's exciting and great. For it's a continual feast. I think of your church when I think of that scripture, because you're always eating and feasting. And, the, and, and, and Mark likes to practice that in your church, that you guys are always having, like, parties. You guys are always hanging out with each other, and it's just a continual feast. This is the life in Christ. It's not the life free of hardship. It's not the life free of war. It's the life free of the promise of loss of war and loss of freedom. No, no, no. This is the, the emerging victory, little by little, the emerging victory. Thank God you're in a war you know you're going to win. You know, if you were in Germany in World War II, as soon as D-Day hit, you knew you were in a war that you were losing. That's a miserable way to fight a war. But if you were on the United States side, you knew you were in a war that you were going to win. Does that mean it wasn't war and it wasn't hard and people didn't die? No. But it meant you had, a, you had a, an end mark. And it was a glorious end mark. And that's what God calls us to. That's what he gives us. That's what he wants us to set our minds on. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. I pray your time with us was very encouraging. If it was, consider sending us a note. And also consider partnering with us. 